This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you're listening to the Sunday Twilight Show with Maud. It is 5 p.m. on Sunday, the 25th of the 20th of November, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is progress in schools. Welcome. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good late afternoon or early evening, fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 24th radio show as your hostess, and I'm delighted to share this experience in your company. But first, I have to introduce myself to any potential new listeners. I'm a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have lived in the UK since August 2008, and I am a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach languages as well as humanities. I also have experience as a teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on Twitter at ProfProfMFL. All views are my own. So today I want to focus on one topic that is relevant to me as an educator and personally in my daily working life. The podcast will be on the topic of progress in schools. So this is mostly relevant to any educators in the English speaking world, to parents of state educated children in the English speaking world, preferably also in the United Kingdom, people interested in education in general, and also the curious and savvy. Right. As usual, we need to start with a definition of the word progress. So in education, progress refers to a student's grasp of essential knowledge and educational skills. And for how long that student is going to work on these skills before they become something he's very familiar with. Today, I'm going to use sources and references from a professional organization specializing in education, such as Ofsted and also the Department for Education. I'm using and quoting a guidance paper entitled Education Inspection Framework, EIF, for those who love acronyms. Um, It was published in 2019, first on the Ofsted website, and now it's been updated again last July 2022. Now, in this report, there is a very different definition. I I shouldn't say different, but slightly restrictive. So, because this is for people who inspect schools and people check progress in order to say if a school is a good school or an outstanding school or a school that requires improvement. So, this is for a very narrow uh, view of progress. Now, this framework was developed by His Majesty's Chief Inspector um, and it's 
really dealt with skills and how the children acquire them and also um, how best to help the children acquire these skills. So the, the man in question was called Sean Hartford and he was national director of education from 2015 to 2021 and then he was Her Majesty's inspector in 2003. Now he's retired from that job. But it's interesting to see what Sean Hartford was saying because he also had a blog post on um, online. So he was saying, for instance, that pupils knowing more and remembering more is his definition of progress. So this is obviously something we can agree with when we want our children to go to school, we want them to start in reception and then to develop and learn many things. And then preferably after um, their 16th or 18th birthday, they should leave school having learned more and remembered more. Now, this is a working definition, as I said, used by Ofsted. And it's its its view is that the school's curriculum, curriculum is a progression model. So anyone who comes to school will go on a journey and they're going to go through a very well sequenced, very well thought, very well prepared curriculum that will equip them with good skills. So progress is an aim and it's also for Ofsted inspectors as well, a way to assess if a school is doing its job. So it is a tool that we use to quantify and identify progress. But too often in state schools in the UK, progress as a whole, progress for a, the student as a human being is a little bit forgotten and it becomes just a measurement tool focused on numbers. And also it shows that we have that culture where we put an overemphasis on mathematics in education. I'm always wondering, how can we measure progress? How can we say that a child has been progressing even though their grades might not be great? It's quite a restrictive way of measuring progress. Now, in Sean Hartford's words, he says, when it comes to inspection, inspectors are looking to see if a school's assessment system supports the child and the child's journey through the curriculum. So, he also acknowledged the fact that schools don't design assessment around what they think inspectors from Ofsted will want to see. And they should really focus on how to make progress happen as much as possible for their students and for the children. But the problem, and he mentioned it on Twitter, Sean Hartford mentioned it on Twitter, there, isn't there is too much reliance on data. And I see it in some schools that I've worked at or that I have visited over the years. You have people who are hired as data manager. So it might sound like something very important for a corporation or a multinational or a big company. But in a school, I'm just wondering, is it justified when we have lots of budget cuts and budget issues to hire someone who's just looking at data? Um, and is it the best way to measure progress generally? Uh, so that's one question I would uh, love to discuss with you today. Now, if we look into um, the nitty gritty of assessments, because you remember, this is the only way so far 
that the Department for Education has created to evaluate schools and to evaluate how much progress children do in schools. So we have a special measurement called Progress 8. So for those who aren't familiar with this term, Progress 8, it is basically a norm. And we use that norm for all children. It's a norm reference system. We compare children at a certain age, let's say in year six, when they are 10, 11, and then we compare them again to each other at the end of their uh, secondary school, so which is when they're 15, 16 years old, when they do their GCSEs. And how do we measure the progress from end of primary school to end of secondary school? Well, we use standardized tests. So Progress 8 is mostly a norm reference system using standardized tests. And these tests are set with one criterion, and this is what an average ideal student should be able to achieve. So this is how we can assess the students, but this is also how we assess schools. Because with the Progress 8, we can see if a school is getting children aged 11 and then allowing them and helping them to progress to a certain level we can expect when they're 16. So that's Progress 8. And there's another tool that we need to be familiar with if we are parents or working in schools, and it's Attainment 8. Attainment 8 is a different measuring tool. It is published annually and it shows the average academic performance of a school. It's calculated differently. We don't compare children at one age and then at a different age. We calculate by adding all the highest scores across eight subjects. So if you look at the subject, they're the most common ones we study at school. So there's English, math, science, languages, history or geography, and then a few other subjects that might be taken into account. And then we look at this. It's published and it's usually published in autumn. So it's not pupil by pupil basis. You will never get access to the progress eight of your child or the attainment eight of your child. It's only the average for the school. So most parents, when they want to choose the right school for their children, they're gonna look at the league tables or the GCSE results, which means they want to know if in their school, the children are succeeding at their um, GCSE exams. The highest grades are from seven to nine. So if you look at a school's website and it says that uh, most students get from seven to nine, it's, it's a sign of academic success. But does it evaluate progress though? Because when we look at progress and eight and attainment eight, these are actually a very important ways to measure if a school is really doing an amazing work, if a school is inspiring students, if a school is equipping them with the best skills to, to better themselves. So looking at GCSE results doesn't show you exactly what goes on in a school and if your child will get the best education possible. Now, as I said, Progress 8 is a type of value-added measure. 
So it indicates if the children over five years have done well in their school. So it takes a pupil's performance in relation to the other students who started primary school at the same age. So it's like a snapshot over five years with um, an evolution of the students. And I do like the idea of comparing with two different times to see what happened in between. But the problem is that we don't get these scores for individual children and they're all grouped together, which means that in the same group, you will have children who are academic, academically gifted, children who have special educational needs, children who have lots of behavior issues, children who are living in poverty and others who are not. So is it that great an instrument of measuring progress? I'm not so sure. I think it should be taken with other um, tools for measuring. Now, when we think about attainment eight, I want to use a visual. So let's imagine for attainment eight, we take a bucket. So let's say the bucket number one will be blue. And then we will put all the marks of all the students in one school in English and maths. So imagine in the first bucket, you get all the marks in English and maths. And then in the second bucket, we're going to make it yellow. Then we put all the, um, the best scores in science, computer science, history, geography, and languages. And then in your third, third bucket, we're going to say it's purple. We get um, the top three scores of all the other subjects that are maybe less um, taken or less popular, such as, I don't know, media studies or dance, GCSE and all that. So these three buckets are what we use to measure attainment eight. And then with a formula, we convert these grades into points. And then it becomes the school's attainment eight. So I hope that visual helps, but it just shows it is again, one tool that can be used, but has its own limitations by the way it's been calculated. The Department for Education looks at a child GCSE grades in eight subjects, and that's attainment eight. That's the, the visual buckets I mentioned. And then it compares this child's results in these subjects to all the other children in the country. So the score is given as either zero or negative or above zero. A score of zero means that in your school that you're looking at, on average, pupil have performed quite okay in their GCSE compared to the rest of the country. If you have a score which is well above zero, towards one, let's say, uh, on average, pupils have made more academic progress than most of the students in the country. But on the other hand, if you have the score below zero, it means that pupils make less progress than other children in the country. So this is the Progress 8 score. And I'm, I've chosen to talk about it in November because we've just had our results. Uh, in autumn. So all the head teachers have been looking at this and they've all been comparing themselves to other schools in the borough and looking at which schools had the best progress eight, which school 
make more progress happen for their students. So I just want to inform parents, if they're listening, that if a school has a negative score, it does not mean that there was no progress. It's not what it means. It just means that most of the children in that school made a little bit less progress than other pupils in the country. But again, where is this school? Who attends this school? What's the what's the family background of the children who attend this school? These are all the other factors that are not reflected in this Progress 8 score. So, is it a useful tool to measure progress? Well, I would argue that, yes, it has its uses. So, Progress 8, the norm one, and Attainment 8, which looks at um, the best grades in some subjects, they're useful for parents who want to look at a state secondary school for their children, because it might show that in some schools in your borough, children are given maybe more skills or more strategies to better themselves than in others. So it's helpful to know which school has the best progress aid or attainment aid. But that's not enough to know if a school is doing the best it can to support children. When is it not enough? Because it is a group-based approach. It gives you an idea of the students, maybe 1,300 students per school, maybe, depends on the size of your school, but it's blunt because it's a group approach and it doesn't show if all students are um, making progress or if some groups of students are not and some others are. So I would say it's too inclusive for, it, for its own good. And then how does it translate in a teacher's practice? How does knowing the score of my school help me in my daily teaching life? Well, I see four main issues with Progress 8, the norm uh, tool. Um, it's a value-added measure, which is which has been rolled out since 2016. My issue with Progress 8 is that it doesn't take a, into account the school context. Is it a school in a wealthy area or not? Is it a school that is selective or not? Is it a school that has a good provision for some um, children with special educational needs? We don't know that when we look at the Progress 8. Another uh, issue with Progress 8 is that it only includes children who were on roll when they got to their year 11. So when they were 15, when they started in September, they were in the school. What if they dropped out of school? What if they are out of education? They are not taken into account in this tool, in this measurement. So we might have um, a very inaccurate score if some children have disappeared from the system. Another issue I found with Progress 8 is that it offers incentives to focus on some subjects but not others. So as I said, maybe we're just going to focus on maths, English, science, language and history and forget about drama, DT and uh, maybe medical uh, fields that we that are very important. And we know since the COVID pandemic that we need people working in hospitality, in um, the NHS. So we don't take into uh, equation these um, 
qualifications that lead to apprenticeships or BTEC or other uh, more vocational training. And then the last uh, reservation I have about that group eight tool is that it can be disproportionately affected by other factors that are not described and taken into account. I have been doing some research online to look at Progress 8 and uh, Attainment 8, and I found an author called Dave Thompson. So he's a specialist in calculations. He's a chief statistician at um, FFT, and he's got 15 years experience looking at educational data. So he's a specialist of progress, attainment, and seeing how children are being educated in our state schools. So he's looking at a lot of data in education, but also in workplaces. So according to him, Progress 8 is not very accurate because, as I said, some students drop out of school before they reach their year 11. And anyone who leaves, maybe because they move school, or maybe they leave the country, or they're permanently excluded, or they're being offered, well, they're not included. And you might think it's just a detail and a very small minority, but in some schools, I have heard that there is a habit of off-rolling students who just can't cope with the educational system as it is, and who are struggling so much that they wouldn't be able to get the grades that the school would like them to have. So these children are magically disappeared out of the calculation of the progress aid. So this is an issue, and because of the way it's calculated, we do not know how many of these children there we have. So a bit of a lack of transparency there. Now. Um, as I said, Dave Thompson is also talking about the fact that there is dif differences in um, um, the non-GCSE qualifications. So some subjects are not taken into account. Who made that decision? Why are we ignoring that subject? It might be a bias um, against vocational training. So this, this is not a very useful tool if we are biased against some subjects. So the Department for Education, they have, um, they usually provide us with updates and they have confirmed that in 2020-2021, they identified a low, middle and high distribution of students who are age 10 and 11. So in the country, globally or nationally, we have 33% of children aged 11 in 2020-21 who were in the low bracket as far as their attainment was concerned. Then we had a big lump for the middle in, uh, in their attainment. There was 52% of these children. And then the high were 15%. So that's the national distribution of children in case four in these attainment groups. So what can we see? The big mass of children in the middle and still more children in the low bracket, 33%, than children in the high bracket as far as their uh, attainment is concerned. So this is for the national figures. I've also been looking at Ben Fuller, who is um, very active on Twitter. Um, and he said, I quote, 
students never find out what their progress scores were. Those are only used for school accountability. So I find that it's a bit of an issue if uh, a school is using a tool and people are looking at this tool, the media are, look, are looking at these tools, parents might be looking at these tools, but the children are not made aware of it or they're not given their own individual score. Why not? Um, at the end of the day, I think we need more transparency in data analysis. And this starts with giving the students their data. It's, it's their right after all. Now, obviously, um, with COVID and the lockdown, there's been difficulty gathering data. We know that uh, some students couldn't do their exams in 2020, 2021. So we're going to have a few years of uncertainty. But there's other tools that are available if we want to um, have a better picture. And Ben Fuller is insisting that the Fisher Family Trust, the FFT, is uh, providing a national data set of uh, estimates and outcomes of learners. And this is a very good website if you want to look at what has, what's happening in UK schools. So the Fisher Family Trust, Fisher, F-I-S-C-H-E-R. And they do um, models and graphs to, to allow you to look at the data. So this is quite useful to palliate the fact that, that we are missing quite a few grades because of the pandemic and its after effects. Now, because I'm um, a European who studied in France and not in England, I discovered when I did my PGCE in 2019-2020 that teachers had to give predicted grades. Well, it was a bit of a shock for me because I first I wondered what prediction had to do with um, accuracy and um, having a very scientific mindset. So what do we know about predicted grades and why does it matter? Well, first, let's look at what it means. A predicted grade is the grade of qualification a person, a person or a person's school or college believes they're likely to achieve. So let's say you have a student, we'll call him A, um, and his teachers are going to say that A should get a five. So this predicted grade is used by university and colleges and maybe they'll look at the predicted grade of A and think, oh, he's expected to have a five, so maybe we can give him a place or not. So the future of this student, student A, can be affected by a prediction. And that's when I find it very, very worrying because how do you make an accurate prediction? I don't know. So how well do teachers predict grades? Well, there hasn't been that many studies looking at the accuracy of teacher prediction, but there has been just a few. So one uh, by Delap in 1994, one by Everett and Papa Giorgio in 2011, and one by Wyness and Murphy. And these um, research papers have said that well, there is a lot of inaccuracy in predicted grades. So what do we see in these predicted grades and in the research papers? Well, 42 to 44% of predicted grades are over predicted by at least one grade. 
and only 7 to 11% of all predicted grades were underpredicted. So, what does it mean? Well, it means that teachers have a tendency, maybe unconscious or not, to give a better grade than what the child could expect to actually do. So, this is not a big deal if you just look at the predicted grades, but then when you look at the impact, because if your predicted grade is used to apply for university, you might uh, get the university of your choice. But if your predicted grade is too low, you might not. And this is young people's futures we're talking about. So now let's look at target grade versus predicted grade. Are they the same? Well, no. A target grade is just the grade the teacher believes a student can achieve if they work hard enough. So that's not so much of a prediction. It's more an evaluation. I believe that you could reach a six if you followed all my instructions and revised every weekend for an hour. So that might be a little bit more accurate and it doesn't have any impact on the children's futures because it's not used for university application. So going back to predicted grades, it's almost an impossible task for teachers because you don't want to be the one who over predicts too much and inflates the predicted grades. But then if you're too harsh, you might, um, well, affect negatively um, the future choices of your students. So a lot of pressure on teachers. At, um, if you look at a, a research paper by Anders in 2020, he highlighted the difficulty that teachers are facing when they're asked to do predicted grades. And also in that research paper, Anders et al., it says that 74% of teacher predictions are incorrect for pupils, 74%. So if we look at this research paper, and if we want to be pragmatic and scientific and act with reason and wisdom, we should question why we're still using predicted grades if 74% of them are inaccurate. I'm hoping lying and misrepresenting is not rife, but who loses out in the system that uses predictions? Well, sadly, it's always the same. It's lower achieving students. They tend to be over predicted and higher achieving students tend to be more accurately predicted. But there is also a controversial side to this issue of predicted grades, because in that um, paper I was mentioning, Anders, published in 2020, it showed that high-achieving state school pupils are more likely to have under-predicted grades compared to students who have the same profile in grammar or private schools. So there is a hyperinflation of predicted grades in grammar and private schools compared to in state schools. And the end result is that the children who have a higher predicted grades, who are in grammar and private school, will end up getting their first choice at university, whereas someone who is just as gifted in a state school might not. So shall we cancel predicted grades? What should we do about it? 
Well, it's not in teachers' hands, I'm afraid, because who uses predicted grades? It's the universities and colleges for their application process. So if we want to get rid of predicted grades, they need to change the application process. Research highlights that predicting student grades is not accurate. Even when you don't involve teachers and you just use data and a formula. So the best solution would be to ask university applications to use actual grades and let's leave prediction for astrology. So it's time for the news. I will be back after five minutes. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. With the World Cup due to begin, TES magazine reveals why some schools won't be screening games during school time. The competition held in Qatar is the subject of much concern from some school leaders worried about the ethics of showing games held in a country with a poor record when it comes to human rights. England play one game against Iran during school hours, but whilst many school leaders have chosen to show significant games in the past, some are choosing not to do so this time. FIFA's choice to host the tournament in Qatar has been controversial from the outset because of the country's laws on homosexuality and its treatment of migrant workers. Some heads have said that showing the game would be at odds with lessons on diversity and equality. Not all leaders share the same view and some schools will show the game but will have what is described as age-appropriate discussions about the ethics of the tournament alongside. Decisions of this nature are always left to individual school leaders and, as debate about the tournament continues, the only real certainty is that this World Cup will be remembered for its controversial hosts, if nothing else. The last week has seen many schools participate in activities to mark Anti-Bullying Week. To further acknowledge the impact bullying can have on young people and their families, the Government's Education Hub has published an article laying out what they're doing to help combat bullying in education. This support has largely been in the form of government grants to fund projects and organisations who do important anti-bullying work. 
This has included further funding for the Diana Award, a recognised anti-bullying programme, the Anti-Bullying Alliance, a new programme to prevent and tackle bullying through quality RSHE education, the Anne Frank Trust to continue the different but the same project, diversity role models, developing intervention materials for schools and equality to support multi-academy trusts or local authorities to create change. Full details of all the projects and the funding can be found on the .gov UK website, as well as in the Preventing and Tackling Bullying Guidance. The Scottish Government will launch an online national discussion on Scottish education the week beginning the 21st of November. Children, young people, parents, carers and teachers are being encouraged to take part by registering for events. Those who register will be able to talk directly to the independent facilitators, Professor Alma Harris and Professor Carol Campbell. The discussion was first launched in September, but in order to ensure as full a discussion as possible, the online events have also been launched. So far, the discussion has received 3,500 responses and feedback will be open until the 5th of December. The Schools and Academy Show 2022 saw the Chair of Ofqual, Ian Buckham, discuss plans for exams and grading for 2023, as well as considering the future of exams, assessment and the use of technology. In his speech, he made it clear that exams and other formal assessments that are like exams give students the fairest chance to show what they know and what they can do. He cited feedback from students, parents and teachers, which he said was overwhelmingly positive, particularly about the return to normal exams in 2022 after the difficulties of the pandemic. Whilst exams in 2023 will see a return to pre-pandemic grading, safeguards will be put in place to ensure no pupil is disadvantaged. This will be the same as those put in place for the 2017 series when pupils sat the reformed GCSE and A-level qualifications for the first time. He went on to speak about the impact of digital tech and described it as when, not if, there would be a greater use of it in high stakes exams. He did, however, acknowledge that a move to greater digital assessment can only come about through joint working across a range of partners and stakeholders, so as not to experiment with young people's futures. A full transcript of the speech can be found on the DfE website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at smartwatches. For those of you that don't know what a smartwatch is, it's basically a watch that has the ability to connect to your phone, enhancing the experience of the owner's smartphone by delivering notifications and controls via an interface, which shows more discreetly and allows the user to decide whether they need to get their phone out or not. This is a real bonus for teachers, as a lot of schools have no phones policies, making it difficult to be contacted during the day. Some smartwatches also can stand alone without the need for a short-range phone connection as they've got built-in cellular or Wi-Fi capability, extending the range of connection, allowing the phone to be left at home. Although this can be useful, you need to bear in mind that there are additional costs for this and answering calls makes you look like you're on an episode of Star Trek talking to your wrist unless you have headphones and replying to texts can be tricky using the watch interface. That being said, one of the most powerful features of smartwatches is the ability to use contactless payment with them. A 
real time saver and also peace of mind. A downside of contactless payment using smart devices is some payment machines, in particular parking meters, only accept cards. This needs to be kept in mind when traveling around. So, what is the best? Well, that depends on the phone you currently have. It isn't really about the best, it's about compatibility. If you want an Apple Watch, you need to have an Apple phone. Android allows more options and also can be considerably cheaper. You need to ask yourself a few questions to decide what's best for you. Here are the questions I'd ask when considering a smartwatch. What do I want it for? If it's to see notifications from a phone, could an activity tracker be what I'm after? Compatible with all mobile phone platforms, there is a reduced control interface, but for around £50, alongside tracking your activity, you can see notifications without the need to get your phone out. What is the battery life like? Will it last until you get home to charge it? What's the display like? Will you be able to see it at a glance? What if you get messaged while pointing at a pupil's work? Will they see it? Can notifications be adjusted so you are not accidentally sharing? Is it noisy? Can you silence it? Can you switch it to vibrate? And finally, some phone contracts allow you to add on extra devices. Will it be cheaper to do it that way or to buy it outright? As always, I'd love to hear your favorite teaching tech. Do you wear a smartwatch? Let us know at TTR2022. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you, dear listeners, for listening to the news. So we mentioned Progress 8 as a tool of measuring progress in UK schools. We mentioned Attainment 8 as another tool. I also uh, discussed the benefits of target grades and uh, mentioned my... Mm, I, I can't say I'm really keen on using predicted grades, but it's an essential because this is what's required for applying to colleges and university. So these are all the tools that are used by schools and by Ofsted and by the Department for Education to check if a school is supporting children in their learning. Now, what do I see in practice in my school? Well, I see year seven children so they start aged 11 and they join us from primary school and they are usually very enthusiastic about learning they have good habits about learning they come with their pencil case with all their pens and their books and they're eager to learn and curious they usually do their homework uh, if they don't they can be um, motivated in doing their homework by giving very good quality homework tasks and also by threatening with detentions if they don't do their homework. What I do notice, and my school is an inner city school in London, is that there is a big issue with literacy. I do have lots of students who are struggling to write in English. English might not be their first language. There's lots of EAL, children with EAL, English as an additional language. But either way, I see a lot of children who struggle with reading and struggle with literacy when they come to secondary school. But we can work on this and we do have extra sessions for children who are really struggling with writing and we try maximum uh, to encourage them to extend their writing, to use classroom English, to um, just improve using different strategies. So to encourage learning retention and memorizing, what we do is we use Scriptorium, the method of handwriting 
words a few times to memorize their spelling. We use pair work. We use body work when they pair together to do homework together. We use cover and look up when you learn keywords by reading them and then hiding them and then trying to remember them. We use illustrations a lot, visuals a lot, particularly for children with special educational needs. We use internet quizzes to make it easy to do and also that doesn't require writing at all times. And we also use formative tasks a lot. So after all this, we're able to make diagnosis very quickly. We see who needs extra help. We see how we can encourage writing and reading. We do reading competitions, writing competition, poetry writing competition. So we do all these things. What do I witness after five years of my students being in my school? And when I say my school, I don't, I don't think it's just particular and specific to my school. I think it's specific to many, many state schools in the UK. Well, what do I see in year 11? I see students who have lost a lot of their motivation, students who are not keen on independent work and are just used to sitting in a classroom without actually having to do any effort by themselves. I see students who are giving up. I can see also students who have not the habit of taking notes and they have unkept books, their present presenting skills are really low or poor. I see children who are writing less than in previous years in content and in word count. I see children who are struggling with tiredness, um, lack of motivation. I see difficult behavior. They contest a lot. They, they don't have any pride in their own work. They lack self-confidence. They believe they can't do things. And this can have a very negative impact on progress eight and attainment eight. So why is that? Well, I think it might be due to many factors. And if we look at the Department for Education website, they published a provisional key stage for school performance. And uh, you can look at the data, it's um, available online, and it shows that there's stark gaps between disadvantaged pupils in some schools and their wealthier peers in other schools or sometimes even in the same school. So this is a reflection of not just the pandemic and its impact, but the whole of the UK society, which is a very divided uh, society with different social classes, which don't actually have the same um, privileges or expectations. Sir Peter Lample, founder of the Sutton Trust, said the government needs to, I quote, step up to the challenge immediately. There's no time to lose in order of uh, making less disadvantaged pupils having less progress than others. So what can we do? Well, the disadvantage gap among secondary school pupils has been widening for the last 10 years. It's all about the money. Wealthier pupils have an average progress aid score of 0.15. And children who are disadvantaged socially, financially, emotionally, 
their average progress rate is minus 0.55. So it's a gap of 0.7. So again, it's about poverty and inequalities. We know that in the UK we have a language deficit. Only 7% of UK inhabitants speak more than one language. And this is detrimental for the economy and for job prospects in the future. So it has been said that languages are also dragging the progress aid score down because children don't do well in languages, children don't want to do languages, and yet languages are part of the eight subjects that are taken into account for progress eight and attainment eight. So it might be one of the reasons why we have a poor score. We are we have noticed that in state schools a lot of students drop languages and in schools that are grammar schools or private schools there's more languages offered and sometimes more than one foreign language they can take two for instance so the percentage of pupils entered for languages is 44.8 percent and it's the lowest in 10 years right so if you compare it to humanities for instance history or geography or RE, it's 81% of pupils who are doing uh, humanities subjects. So languages do not help and aren't helped. Now, if we look at the percentage of pupils who do science um, compared to humanities and languages, languages are always underneath 50%. Humanities have been increasing since 2010 to 2022 by more than 20%, which is great. Science is at an all-time high with more than 85%. So definitely we see a bias towards science more than languages and humanities. So it's really good to have people who have a scientific knowledge, but it shouldn't be done by having a negative impact on other subjects. We should be able to do these subjects equally and giving them our attention equally. Now, if you look at Progress 8 carefully for all the areas of England, you're going to notice that it shows the north-south divide in a geographical way. So if you're in London, Progress 8 is positive, 0.23. And if you are in uh, West Midlands, it's negative, minus 0.06. Or if you are in East Midlands, minus 0.03. So again, it shows that South East and London and Southwest have better progress score than the rest of the country. There is also still the same, it's like a painting of society that we can do using the progress eight, and it would show in different colors how unequal the system is. We have the geography inequality with the north-south divide. And then we have um, the differences in ethnicity that are um, very obvious when you look at progress score. So you would be surprised or maybe not to see that um, Asian students with a Chinese background have the highest average progress score at 0.99 followed by other Asian communities at 0.54. Black pupils have one of the lowest average progress score of 
um, and um, we have the lowest progress scores that are mixed and white pupils and also working class pupils with minus 0.04 and minus 0.14. So you can see that there is definitely in progress eight, the same issues highlighted in the numbers. It is still children who are disadvantaged who do less well in schools. And the tragedy is like the, the difference is really shocking if you see it on the FFT website. They have a progress eight scores by ethnicity with English as an additional language and status and disadvantage. And the lowest progress score with less than minus one, it's children who are traveler or with Irish heritage and gypsy children or Roma children. And on the other hand, the highest progress score are Indian children or Chinese or Asian with a zero point, more than 0 0.5 um, progress score. So very, very unequal um, if you look at diversity of ethnicity. Now, um, the gap between pupils who have special educational needs has been widening between 2019 and 2021. So I find it ironic to see that we measure the progress of schools and the progress of students. And yet in that measurement, we see the lack of progress and even the downfall of the um, provision for children in special educational needs. So I would, I would think, and I would argue that this is a govern, gov governmental um, failure the fact that the progress eight is going down instead of up because they are the ones who make the decisions and they are the ones who have leadership leadership and they're the ones who are responsible another interesting uh, divide is the female and male divide the average score for disadvantaged boys has fallen by by less than for disadvantaged girls so girls progress eight scores remain far higher than boys. So it is very important to see that girls do better at school still, and we should address why, and we should find ways to make boys catch up and maybe change the way we educate boys so that they have a better progress score. Now, another issue that I mentioned earlier when we look at Progress 8 and Attainment 8 is that we look at some subjects and not others. So these subjects, and I'm going to tell you the list so that you know exactly which subjects are evaluated. There is English language and literature, maths, and sciences, which are called the core subjects. And then you have the humanities with geography or history and a language. So these are the Eng English baccalaureate subjects. So I repeat, English, math, science as core subjects, and then geography or history and a language. But what about drama? What about dance GCSE? What about uh, hospitality GCSEs? What about more vocational GCSEs? What about all these jobs that we need now and that we are not taking, in, taking into account? Well, the EBAC measures are done on these subjects, on these very restricted subjects, these core subjects. 
and um, that score doesn't really reflect the plethora of subjects that we offer to students and how well they do in these subjects. So maybe we are looking at one type of progress and not another type of progress that is just as valid. Because at the end of the day, we want students to go to school to be a better version of themselves, to become the best them they can be. But it doesn't mean that they have to be scientists or specialists of English literature. They could be amazing at uh, being a carer or someone who works in hospitality or someone who, who's going to be a dancer. But these subjects are not promoted as such and they're not taken into account in the progress score. So there's a little bit of a bias there. Also, family relation to school has ever been important and crucial. And we look at the socioeconomic background of children and we see how much the way their family sees school affects their grade. So again, we need to have measuring tools that show the complexity of looking at student cohorts and evaluating if they're progressing or not. The government wants to have 75% of students in the UK entering the EBAC, so the English Baccalaureate. And their aim to reach in 2025, so it's only in two years, three years max, their aim is to have 90% of children doing an English Baccalaureate. 90%. Is it the best for all these children? And are we going to be able to achieve it? Most children are doing English, maths and science in schools. But what about all these other subjects? Fine arts, sports studies, design and technology, computer science, drama. These are all way, way, way less promoted in the schools and not taken into account in that progress aid. So we can see that there's definitely a bit of inaccuracy going on. Now, I'm not going to get, read you a list of all the very important other subjects we can do, but I'm just going to say we have OCR childcare skills, BTEC engineering, OCR computer architecture, we have BTEC health studies. We need these qualifications, we need young people doing these jobs. And yet, these are less than 40,000 students taking them a year. And that's for 2022. For health studies, there was less than 40,000 students doing a BTEC in health studies. When you know how many porters, how many nurses, how many um, care workers we need for our, for our NHS, we can see that there's definitely an issue in the way we look at progress and how we promote certain subjects. English Baccalaureate is very low in its intake. If you look at this dream that the government has, 90% by 2025, where are we at now? Well, I'll tell you, there's only 38.7% of students in the UK who are doing an English baccalaureate at the moment. So let's be generous, let's call it 40%. So do you think it's realistic to expect to go from 40% in 2022 
to 90% of students in 2025. I don't think I'll see it happen, but I mean. Schools tend to enter pupils for more qualifications because they want a higher pH score. And that's a bit of a problem. They are focusing on these mainstream subjects from the English baccalaureate. But this, this is not going to make um, progress better for all, because some students would thrive doing a BTEC in engineering and really would not if they did humanities, language or literature. Let's be honest, we need to measure progress for each person, not as a group and not with an arbitrary selection of subjects. We need other ways to assess a school. So obviously some parents will only look at the school and college performance website and they will end up looking at the league tables. Again, this is very restricted and very restrictive. It's the most uh, common subjects and that may, might not suit your child. So bear that in mind. I had a look at the school league tables just out of curiosity for 2022. I looked at the first 10 best schools in the country for their GCSE and A-level results. So if we just look at their results in English, science, maths, language, history or geography. Well, these 10 schools, and you might be, you might have heard of them. There's Queen Elizabeth School in Barnet, Henrietta Barnet School in London, the Tiffins Girls School in Kingston-upon-Thames, Reading School in Reading, Altrincham Grammar School for Girls, Colchester Royal Grammar School, King Edward VI Camp Hill School for Boys. So most, actually, I shouldn't say most, the 10 best schools in the country, and I'm only talking about state secondary, are all selective. All of them. They all select children at the end of year six when they're 10 to 11 years old. They are all selected on their academic skills, and these academic skills are usually English, maths, and verbal uh, reasoning. So this means that we are looking at a selected cohort of students who've been possibly tutored or who have been in private school before or who have just been prepped to get to these selective schools. These are not always mixed schools as well. So it doesn't reflect any sort of progress that the school does with these students because they already start with a selective uh, as my um, French teacher used to say, they have the cream of the cream. So I'm not sure this is very useful for parents to look at the traditional school league tables. And also it is biased again because it is a very small minority of students. So how can we find accountability and traceability and transparency in data? Because it's all about looking at data and trying to see trends and what goes on inside schools in the UK. Well, as I said, we can use a few tools. Progress 8, that focuses only on eight arbitrary chosen qualifications. 
We can look at the EBAC entry, which is how many students are going to do that English baccalaureate. We can look at pupil destinations. How many students in that school are staying in education after? Are they just going to enter the workforce age 16 years old? We can look at employment uh, levels after that as well. Some people might just want to focus on numeracy and literacy and looking at English and maths. Who achieves more than a grade five in English and maths, for instance? And attainment eight, which is, again, the same eight qualifications, remember the ones from the English baccalaureate, with these three buckets, as I mentioned earlier, the visual of the buckets, with um, all the best scores for each subject and then compared to the national average. Well, you could add the EBAC APS, which is the English Baccalaureate Average Point Score. All these are very narrow and they do not reflect what progress is about for the individual pupil at the school. I'll give you an example. I have a student who has severe behavior needs and behavior difficulties that translate in um, very, very low exam results because he's got difficulty focusing and um, I think his literacy and numeracy must be very, very low. And his reading age is that of a child who is eight years old, when, whereas he's 13 or 14 years old. Well, if you look at all these criteria, I've mentioned progress eight, EBAC entry, pupil destination, attainment, attainment eight, EBAC, APS. He's not going to appear in any of these um, scores or tools because he will already be out of the system. He's going to end up off roll. His, his scores are too low to be taken into account. And also, we're not measuring his progress. But if you look at the way his behavior is improving or changing in school, he might be able to learn to socialize something he didn't know before before he joined our school. He might be able to just have make more friends and and just learn to behave in society. And maybe for him, it's immense progress. But this is never going to be translated into data. This is not going to be appraised, and this is not going to be taken into account. And I think this is the the very big problem of all these progress measurement measuring tools is that they only look at a tiny proportion of what makes a child and makes a child progress and it focuses with laser sharp control on a very very limited area of learning so I just want to read you a um, comment that Pat has been adding on the chat. Pat is, is saying, Progress 8 is taking away subjects that give students life skills and employability skills. I completely agree with Pat. And I'm going to say that because our curriculum is so restrictive and so centralized and so compulsory, we forget what really matters. Think about it. We have the next generation in our schools. Are we giving them life skills? Are we making sure they can all swim? Are we making sure they can do first aid? Are we making sure they know how to grow seeds? 
and then gather crops and feed themselves? Are we making sure they know what a healthy, balanced diet is? Maybe if they do DT, or maybe if they study a little bit of biology. But remember, biology is not taken into account. I mean, it's part of science, but there's so much to cover in science. Do we really have the time to make sure the children know how to cook a healthy, balanced meal from scratch? I'm not so sure. And yet, this is essential to live as a citizen. So I think we are forgetting what really matters when we look at Progress 8 and the weights. It is too data-obsessed and it is too narrow. It's not going to show what a diverse school can do to help students. Obviously, in the media, you've heard that one school who had the best Progress 8 is a very controversial school in North London, in Wembley. You've all heard, I guess, of Michaela's school. And you will know that they had one of the highest, if not the highest, Progress 8 score. With They, they belong to the top 1% nationwide. What I admire about Michaela, the, the school, is that they have a very, very difficult student cohort with children who have poverty, on free school meals, children who have English as an additional language, maybe children also with special needs, and yet they manage to give them the best progress they can. Well, they do, and they do fit the criteria that the Department for Education is giving them. But at what cost? Because remember, they don't do sports at Michaela, they don't do arts at Michaela, because they don't have time and they also don't have the space. It might be just a question of equipment and resources. But they have dropped a lot of subjects and they focus on these core subjects, English, maths, a little bit of humanities and science and a language. So, yes, they do have a very, very good solid score and I upload that. I'm definitely uploading that, but they have to, they had to make choices to get there. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Please use the chat if you want to share more. Now, if I look at my daughter's school, um, another school in North London, the student cohort is very different from Michaela's student cohort. It is um, middle class, um, well-to-do area. It's got an outstanding rating as well. Their progress score is in the top 28% nationwide. So way lower than Michaela's uh, progress aid score. However, they do have a very good um, maths pass rate and pupil to teacher ratio is also good. What I want to say is that progress eight reflects a choice in the way we teach it reflects um, hyper-focus on these particular subjects to sometimes the detriment of other subjects. So Progress 8 is just one tool. Don't you think it's the only be and all of progress? And now if I look at my school's Progress 8, we are in the low 48% nationwide. Why is that? Well, I did mention that we are still struggling a little bit with making sure the good habits that we have in year seven stay all the way until year 11. It might be social, it might be cultural, 
I think um, we have issues with families who are disengaged, families who do not trust the school as an institution, families who believe that teachers don't have the children's interest at heart. So I think we need sometimes to really work with the community in a different way and to change generations um, way of thinking, which is not an easy task, but I mean, I'm working on it. Trust me. I'm gonna let you listen to the news one more time before um, wrapping up the progress in school topic of the day. Thank you for listening to the news, dear listeners. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. With the World Cup due to begin, TES magazine reveals why some schools won't be screening games during school time. The competition held in Qatar is the subject of much concern from some school leaders worried about the ethics of showing games held in a country with a poor record when it comes to human rights. England play one game against Iran during school hours, but whilst many school leaders have chosen to show significant games in the past, some are choosing not to do so this time. FIFA's choice to host the tournament in Qatar has been controversial from the outset because of the country's laws on homosexuality and its treatment of migrant workers. Some heads have said that showing the game would be at odds with lessons on diversity and equality. Not all leaders share the same view, and some schools will show the game, but will have what is described as age-appropriate discussions about the ethics of the tournament alongside. Decisions of this nature are always left to individual school leaders, and as debate about the tournament continues, the only real certainty is that this World Cup will be remembered for its controversial hosts if nothing else. The last week has seen many schools participate in activities to mark Anti-Bullying Week. To further acknowledge the impact bullying can have on young people and their families, the Government's Education Hub has published an article laying out what they're doing to help combat bullying in education. This support has largely been in the form of Government grants to fund projects and organisations who do important anti-bullying work. This has included further funding for the Diana Award, a recognised anti-bullying programme, the Anti-Bullying Alliance, 
a new programme to prevent and tackle bullying through quality RSHE education, the Anne Frank Trust to continue the different but the same project, diversity role models, developing intervention materials for schools and equality to support multi-academy trusts or local authorities to create change. Full details of all the projects and the funding can be found on the .gov UK website, as well as in the Preventing and Tackling Bullying Guidance. The Scottish Government will launch an online national discussion on Scottish education the week beginning the 21st of November. Children, young people, parents, carers and teachers are being encouraged to take part by registering for events. Those who register will be able to talk directly to the independent facilitators, Professor Alma Harris and Professor Carol Campbell. The discussion was first launched in September, but in order to ensure as full a discussion as possible, the online events have also been launched. So far, the discussion has received 3,500 responses and feedback will be open until the 5th of December. The Schools and Academy Show 2022 saw the Chair of Ofqual, Ian Buckham, discuss plans for exams and grading for 2023, as well as considering the future of exams, assessment and the use of technology. In his speech, he made it clear that exams and other formal assessments that are like exams give students the fairest chance to show what they know and what they can do. He cited feedback from students, parents and teachers, which he said was overwhelmingly positive, particularly about the return to normal exams in 2022 after the difficulties of the pandemic. Whilst exams in 2023 will see a return to pre-pandemic grading, safeguards will be put in place to ensure no pupil is disadvantaged. This will be the same as those put in place for the 2017 series when pupils sat the reformed GCSE and A-level qualifications for the first time. He went on to speak about the impact of digital tech and described it as when, not if, there would be a greater use of it in high stakes exams. He did, however, acknowledge that a move to greater digital assessment can only come about through joint working across a range of partners and stakeholders, so as not to experiment with young people's futures. A full transcript of the speech can be found on the DfE website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at smartwatches. For those of you that don't know what a smartwatch is, it's basically a watch that has the ability to connect to your phone, enhancing the experience of the owner's smartphone by delivering notifications and controls via an interface, which shows more discreetly and allows the user to decide whether they need to get their phone out or not. This is a real bonus for teachers, as a lot of schools have no phones policies, making it difficult to be contacted during the day. Some smartwatches also can stand alone without the need for a short-range phone connection as they've got built-in cellular or Wi-Fi capability, extending the range of connection, allowing the phone to be left at home. Although this can be useful, you need to bear in mind that there are additional costs for this and answering calls makes you look like you're on an episode of Star Trek talking to your wrist unless you have headphones and replying to texts can be tricky using the watch interface. That being said, one of the most powerful features of smartwatches is the ability to use contactless payment with them a real time saver and also peace of mind. A downside of contactless payment using smart devices is some payment machines, in particular parking meters, only accept cards. This needs to be kept in mind when traveling around. 
So, what is the best? Well, that depends on the phone you currently have. It isn't really about the best, it's about compatibility. If you want an Apple Watch, you need to have an Apple phone. Android allows more options and also can be considerably cheaper. You need to ask yourself a few questions to decide what's best for you. Here are the questions I'd ask when considering a smartwatch. What do I want it for? If it's to see notifications from a phone, could an activity tracker be what I'm after? Compatible with all mobile phone platforms, there is a reduced control interface, but for around £50, alongside tracking your activity, you can see notifications without the need to get your phone out. What is the battery life like? Will it last until you get home to charge it? What's the display like? Will you be able to see it at a glance? What if you get messaged while pointing at a pupil's work? Will they see it? Can notifications be adjusted so you are not accidentally sharing? Is it noisy? Can you silence it? Can you switch it to vibrate? And finally, some phone contracts allow you to add on extra devices. Will it be cheaper to do it that way or to buy it outright? As always, I'd love to hear your favorite teaching tech. Do you wear a smartwatch? Let us know at TTR2022. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. So, dear listeners, we talked about progress in schools in the UK and how it's measured. We talked about the difference between Progress 8, which is um, norm-tested, and uh, the difference with Attainment 8, we said it was tools used by Ofsted and by schools to compare one another. We also mentioned target grades, which are the grades that a child is expected to uh, reach if they work hard, and predicted grade, which are the domain, domain I would argue, of fantasy, where teachers assume that a child should be worth a six or a seven or eight and they are used by colleges or universities for university or college application forms we did talk about the lack of accuracy the lack of transparency whether it's progress eight or attainment eight these aren't actually um, shown to students on an individual basis these are group scores and we also mentioned the fact that because some subjects are chosen as seen as more important, other subjects are just as important for long life skills or for the economy of the country. This doesn't really reflect the plethora of subjects that children are learning. And this gives us a skewed vision of what progress means. Progress aid score also reflects what happens in society as a whole. There is the North and South geographical divide. There is the boy and girl divide with girls doing better. There is ethnicity divisions with some groups doing way better in progress, such as Chinese or Asian groups compared to uh, white working class or uh, mixed race and um, black groups, um, black, black students doing having a less high um, progress aid also um, roma or gypsy or traveler irish traveler children having the lowest progress aid in schools this reflects the society we live in the fact that some children in grammar and private schools get higher predicted grades inflated predicted grades, giving them more chances to have their first choice at university compared to just as successful students in a state school environment. So we have 
analyzed the difficulty of assessing data and the difficulty of seeing real progress that's done in schools, we need to take into account that some students can't have a progress that can be quantified or translated into a number. If you have a student who was nonverbal, because they might be neurodivergent, and at the end of school they're able to uh, talk to students or other teachers, this is not going to appear in Progress 8 or Attainment 8, and yet this is progress. So again, very centralized system, having very restricted and restrictive tools to measure progress, might be very antiquated way of seeing education. So we have a lot on our plate if we want to improve our educational system and the way we see progress. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope it was informative and I look forward to seeing you next week. Next week we will have a guest. She's an American citizen working in a state school in the UK. She's delightful and we will talk about the differences between education in America and education in the UK. Until then, I wish you a lovely Sunday evening and a very good week. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.